but before we got on mic, we were discussing uh, how many young minds fell in and out of love with figures like Bill Maher because they uh, expressed like something that felt like alternative and like you know mm-hmm. if you were an edgelord atheist kid like some of us listening to this show might have been uh myself or, or some of us hosting the show yeah yeah <laughs> like let's me. not ad- admit too much on mike but um uh you yeah. might have been attracted to that and then as you get older you know if you're my age in your 20s you would have realized that like hey the only religion he's attacking anymore is islam and it seems like you know, it, it, he, it was such a weird slide into that position that he took from the Bush years into the Obama years. And uh, I, I really think that so many of us fell for it, primarily because we had what I like to call daily show brain, mm-hmm. which is a specific sure. type of, of self-assured, smug, holier-than-thou liberalism that doesn't really take much effort to cultivate but um allows you to simultaneously think you're smarter than everybody and still Mm -hmm. occasionally consider republicans viewpoints (laughs) all right well that is the episode we have done our (laughs) that's right (laughs) (laughs) welcome to our self-criticism session folks (laughs) yo i i literally have something planned for later in the episode in that exact same kind of framing so but i mean yeah go ahead john I, i just spent so much of my young life watching shit like the daily show and the cold bear report and uh all of that other garbage <laughs> and uh just thinking that i was so fucking smart for for getting it like a like like someone who had just read infinite jest for the first time uh <laughs> just like, i do like that book i it's think a good people book. get a little too ragged on it because it became such a weird hipster thing in like the early 2000s no yeah it's totally a system of a down situation where the <laughs> yes. the, the material is good and the fans have fucked it up badly but um <laughs> It's not a comparison I would have thought to make. I mean, I guess welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody, the number one uh, cultural commentary podcast where you can hear John say things like the Daily Show brain, one of our favorite (laughs) diagnoses of modern liberalism. Uh, We're entirely listener supported, so thank you so much if you throw us any money on Patreon. If you're not in the Discord, get in the Discord. It's where we post the memes so you don't just have to listen to us painstakingly describe uh, frames of comic strips. Uh, Leave us a five-star review wherever you think it will help, Uh, you know. Write that shit down on the back of a cereal box for all I care. As long as your heart's in it, that's what really matters. And uh, we're going to start just with a quick one right now because it looks like we have victories not just at Columbia, where the workers have overwhelmingly ratified their contract, but at multiple other schools that are experiencing this uptick in uh, education labor antagonism. Yeah, so yeah. people uh, actually remember we did a really cool interview, which mm-hmm. if you haven't listened to it, you definitely should go back and listen to it because out of all of our interviews, I found it to be one of the more compelling ones because we they go into like rank and file organizing and all of the history from uh, before they were able to do their rank and file organizing to the point where they were and how they got their victory. And well, uh, we're here to report today that uh, they really have actually gotten their victory victory yeah again not only for themselves but also for other people in uh in the uh what is it student worker industry yeah Yeah. like as lena was saying like 
even though now like the the Columbia strike is over and, th- and they've just ratified their new contract, I still think it's very much worth listening to that episode because as you were saying, Linda, there's so much in there that's instructional, like about like things you can take to help if you're starting a, an organizing drive, if you're trying to re-energize a union that you're already in and you know you're trying to get it to be more democratic. There's a lot that that our our guest went into about the actual nitty gritty process that they went through to try and energize like the whole membership of their union. And, you know, it seems like all that work, which they've been doing really for years at this point, because like, while this last strike was 10 weeks, like that's the culmination of years of organizing. And I think it's very much reflected in this 97.6% approval of their mm-hmm. very first contract there at Columbia. And, you know, our hats are off to them. They've, we, we talked about all the details on, on our previous episodes, so I'm not going to go into everything, but, you know, big wage increases, great new benefits, full recognition of the union, and it doesn't tie their hands as far as future strikes and solidarity actions go. So a real big <laughs> win. That particular um, win is maybe one of the more surprising ones because that is the one that almost every single company or organization that is you know fighting against a union will not let happen they mm-hmm. the whole the whole idea companies have is that the the point of a contract is to stop strikes it's like no no <laughs> the point of a contract is to increase like the quality of of work conditions mm-hmm. yeah and and as you were you were saying like so we've now got this they've got the, they've won their their hard-fought contract and it seems to already immediately be having ripple effects around, you know, the the student worker organizing field because in the same week that that contract was ratified, student workers at Princeton announced that their like the the university just out of the blue decided to accede to a demand that they'd been pushing to have their student worker uh, yeah. wages raised by 25% next year. That's right. Henry Ford enacted the eight hour work day. <laughs> <laughs> but cause, and that's like, that's one of the things that I think, yeah, I, I mean, we mentioned this before, but it's something we always want to highlight is that like when you're fighting for your union, when you're doing any sort of organizing work like this in your workplace to try and get better conditions, like you're you're not just fighting for the people like at your individual job site because like organizing has ripple effects like this. It impacts the ability of companies all over the place to have to actually give better conditions to folks. Otherwise, you know, they might look over and say, hmm, maybe we need a union just like that. Maybe we can get even more. Right. I mean, then they could. I mean, that's it's a great it's a great thing that uh, those people got raises, but uh, you know, yeah. Th- I mean, th- I that's not that's not the only thing that the uh, that the Columbia workers got. Of, of course, no. <laughs> but it's just it's 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 good to see those like immediate effects. And we also saw in a similar vein, there are student workers at Dartmouth. These are specifically uh, dining hall workers who have been organizing, trying, fighting for a union there, and they just got, basically as part of their effort, where they've been fighting for voluntary recognition, they haven't got it, but while they are still fighting for their, their NLRB election, they've been able to force the university to give them a temporary 50% raise for the duration of the pandemic, basically, functionally, hazard pay, right. which, obviously, again, I mean, it's one of those things that they should have implemented that on their own, 
but you know, unless you've got an organized force fighting for it, like the boss is never going to just give you that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want uh, the government to actually start doing stuff about COVID, uh, making sure that there is a 50% raise until the quote unquote end of the pandemic uh, might be a way to kind of pressure yeah. them, hit them in the wallet. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's great to see the folks at, at Columbia finally, after years of, of, of organizing, get their contract and then see these immediate like ripples. And it's not to say that like, I don't want to minimize the organizing efforts by the students at Princeton, by the students at Dartmouth, because like, as always, that's the primary driving force. But I, I always want to highlight these, the way that labor organizing is, it, it, it like synergizes right. across dialectical. And you don't have to just imagine that that's what happens. Like you can see it on Twitter. Like the these people who are involved in organizing drives at uh, Dartmouth and Princeton are tweeting like we are winning big victories. You know, thanks to our organizing efforts and those uh, at Columbia University. So like the students in the student workers involved in this are saying this themselves. Wow, yeah. radical unions get the goods. <laughs> <laughs> that is what hey. First, now we've got Columbia. Next, we'll get more universities. Then maybe you know, grad student pattern bargaining agreement. Ooh, no. <laughs> <laughs> just saying, you always got to have that 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 higher that next goal, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of an industry that needs some uh, industry-wide pattern bargaining, yeah, no, uh, we want to talk about the nurses, uh, specifically this time about the nurses that are being proletarianized and pushed into gig industry work. And this is something you might already be familiar with in one more convoluted form, if you know anybody who's a, a travel nurse or have heard about that, uh, that line of work. But it's going even further than that, folks. They're finally launching apps. So now you can have yeah. the, the flexibility as a healthcare professional to live the most precarious life possible. Yeah, you can uh, you can own your own business while working for a company. Wait, you don't work for the company. Wait, hold on. I'm yeah. yeah you wait, can you can provide healthcare that you are no longer eligible for. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, actually, very much yes. Um, yeah. So this story this is this is coming out of a a, a good write up in Jacobin where I got to say it's been this is I think a great example of how the pandemic has accelerated. A lot of the contradictions because like travel nursing existed before the pandemic, but it has exploded since the pandemic hit because as we've talked about before on the show and as like National Nurses United has been really pointing this out for a while that because of the attempt to squeeze as much profit as they can out of these hospitals because we have a fucking stupid privately run healthcare system and all these hospitals for the most part are run by private companies. Like every other industry, they're functionally following these like lean management techniques wherein you mm -hmm. purposefully cut as much staff as you can to squeeze as much surplus value out of every worker as possible. And like, cause how many strikes have we talked about in the past? Like the, the, the strike at St. Vincent's was primarily about safe staffing. Because, right. like, again, the, when a crisis hits, like a pandemic, although this is, you know, a crisis that's now gone on for two fucking years, like, 
they don't have enough nurses and they're just trying to force each one to do the work of two, three, four plus nurses. Right. So th- this just in time lean model of business, this doesn't just mean keeping supplies on hand in the minimum and only when required, mm-hmm. which is already dangerous when your supplies are things like prescription drugs and available hospital beds. And but PPE. it's also PPE. Exactly. It's also keeping labor to an absolute mm-hmm. minimum and only calling it when you need it. So uh, the the drive to gigify this kind of work is uh, a direct outcropping of this business ethos that, as you, as you mentioned in the notes here, started in the automotive industry, but we're now seeing, especially in the wake of COVID, creeping into almost every industry you can imagine. Yeah, like, uh, it's just... So... When the pandemic hit, you know, you had all these hospitals. They're already understaffed to begin with. So they said, okay, crap, we got we to gotta manage to actually staff up. But mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not – I mean, we could hire more people full-time, let them join the union, have benefits. But that would, that would be expensive. And surely this, this pandemic won't last that long. And if we hire them full-time, then we're saddled with all those costs that we have to deal with. So we'll pay these travel nurse companies. And sure, we may have to sp- – spend, you know, twice, three times, four times the hourly labor rate that we're spending on our full-time nurses, but we won't have to pay for benefits and we can cut them loose as soon as the crisis is over. But the problem that that's run into now, I mean, there's a whole bunch of side effects of that. Like Like, the the never ending crisis, the, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, no, exactly. And that, that has now created a problem where we have lost 20% of the full-time healthcare staff in this country over the last two years because of a combination of burnout, um, just people getting sick and not being able to work, people taking mm-hmm. early retirement, but also big driver is because when you have these workers who are being like worked to the bone by this lean model of under purposeful understaffing and seeing all these travel nurses that are being brought in making two, three, four times as much per hour, like they may not love that model. They may not love the insecurity that comes with it, but there are a lot of folks. I mean, I've, we, I've seen a million like Reddit posts, Twitter posts, TikTok videos of nurses being like, I can't do it anymore. I can't, you know, work for $30 an hour, which, you know, for, for most of our listeners are probably like, Oh, that's pretty good. But it's like, if you're working next to somebody who's making a hundred dollars an hour doing the same work, it's going to be pretty hard to avoid the temptation to be like, fuck this. I'm going to go work for this travel nurse company. Right. Well, and they do that specifically to, uh, coax nurses into these positions. You know, you can be, you can rest assured that if the, uh, market for travel nurses ever expanded to a wide enough size, the wages for them would suddenly weirdly start becoming suppressed immediately. Well, and that's where I think this gig model comes in because like what this story is about is there's this new like group of companies called things like care rev shift med and nomad health. That's the worst one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) These fucking names. Yes, I am mad health. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) where they're now taking it the next step further where instead of just being like okay we are going to take away the stability of having a permanent location and the stability of benefits but we're going to pay you a really high wage and move you around spot to spot based on whatever contracts we get they're now shifting that into full the full gig model where 
In addition to having the last lack of benefits, you're also misclassified as an independent contractor, but you also don't even really have like the shitty support staff that aren't good, but that might like direct you place to mm-hmm. place. It's, it's, it's basically Uber for nurses where you got to go through an app that is a black box algorithm that you have no input on. Mm-hmm. And that's like, Hey, this hospital 40 miles away is paying this rate. This hospital 60 miles away is paying this rate. This hospital 12 miles away is paying this rate. And that's how the, these places are going to go after getting nurses now, because with that model, as we've seen with things like Uber and Lyft and Instacart and all these other gig companies, you can use this sort of algorithmic model to slash costs even more. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is obviously going to uh, squeeze the conditions of the nurses who are uh, either lured or forced into this kind of work because, you know, they need the money. It's also going to suppress their wages and, and, uh, make everything generally worse for them. But on top of that, it's also going to like vastly uh, undercut the quality of care for patients mm-hmm. because even with travel nurses, like, yeah, you're not working in the same hospital all the time, but you're working in the same hospital for certain lengths of time for right. stints and you get familiar, you know your way around, you get to know the other staff, etc. Whereas with a, a gig model, if you're working at a different hospital every day of the week, let's say, and it's your first time at three of them, you're going to have three wildly unproductive days where you are just not operating at the capacity or of, of professional care that it takes to go around saving lives, which is what your job is. Right. And that's what like is, I think so worrying about this because like all of the aspects of our healthcare system that have been made worse mm-hmm. by privatization and then by the usage of this like stop gap travel nurse system are just going to be accelerated in an even shittier direction. By gigification, you're you're you are gonna like rocket the quality of care downwards. You you are gonna have people who every time they show up, like you're not gonna know where everything is. You're not gonna know your way around the software systems that are used at these places, which are oftentimes you know they use different softwares between different companies between different hospitals. Like it's it's going to degrade the quality of care that patients get in our already shitty private healthcare system. Because like, I mean, and and it's one of those things where this is just intuitive, like any job that you've worked doing anything, like even if it's like, whether you, if you worked at subway, you are not as effective the first day that you're there as you are, even if you've just been there for a couple weeks. Well, right. I mean, I've had healthcare providers where, you know, you show up and they're like, oh, yeah, we have a new computer system. We got it a couple weeks ago and I'm still learning it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine, like, going between all of the different systems as they staggered, you know, update systems and you, you show up and you're just like, uh, where's this piece of information? And you have to, like, wait for someone to be available to show you where the piece right. of information is, all that stuff. It's, like, impossible to actually expect these people to do their job to the same like level that someone who actually has the job and is there every day or every work day, I should say, uh, would do. It's just well, not possible. All of this is exacerbated by the fact, uh, you know, and this isn't even necessarily labor specific. This is just capitalism that like uh, all of the things that you have to do in a workplace now are often contracted out through various other systems. So it's like, oh, I need to print out this patient's sheet, you know, their their like uh, their documentation or whatever. And they're like, okay, do you have your pathos login? 
did you call the the synergy the synergy associate and and get them <laughs> right. to give you the the green you know the the yellow card information that you need to hand to the doctor or whatever and it's like all of these things have a fucking trademark next to them because they're propri- some proprietary fucking service that shit's hard enough to learn when you're a new employee who's going to be working there for a long time i have to imagine if you're some gig nurse who showed up a lot of the time you're just like, fuck it. I'm not learning this because what's the point? Are you going to be back here? You don't know. And, and I mean, the other thing though, that I think is a a little more specific to this, to the healthcare industry is Mm -hmm. like when you have a patient who is in the hospital for more than one day or may, and maybe you're trying to figure out like what they need for treatment. That's not necessarily the sort of thing that, you know, is solved in five minutes or solved with one visit. Like it's, it, you don't have, by doing this gigification model, you don't have the opportunity to spend those extended periods of time, learn what like a patient needs, like learn what's even just what's been like, yeah, I know every patient gets a chart, but it's like, that's not just reading that stuff yeah. is not the same as, as interacting with them on a day to day to day basis. No, exactly. no way. Learning something off of a page of paper isn't the same as learning it by doing it and interacting with it consistently. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I mean, like th- just imagine like i mean everybody's seen someone who needed care in the hospital and they're like oh yeah i told the nurse and then someone's like oh well there's a there's a, a one sentence note here in the in the thing i guess maybe that's what they were talking about like that sort of obscure knowledge is going to be way more prevalent and we're going to see more deaths because people even if even if uh people who are being treated are giving the information to this temporary nurse the nurse might only put down a so much of that information and it could be totally overlooked because it's not necessarily at the forefront of the next nurse who came in who's also a gig worker's brain because they didn't know to keep an eye out for it because they didn't hear how important it was to the person being treated right well and people have like a a a distorted perception of what the medical professions are like on the ground i think everybody to like americans especially to some degree think that all healthcare professionals are just like Dr. House from House where <laughs> yes. he's like he's like age 55 blood type AB positive you have butthole worms and it's like that tweet <laughs> where the the other person is like wow one of only two recorded cases of butthole worms in history how did you know and Dr. House is just playing air guitar on his cane like that <laughs> well yeah cuz it's I, it's like like I don't know I used to have a lot of stupid ideas about that shit where it's like uh-huh. when they first announced that like oh we're going to use IBM Watson to replace doctors cuz it's like there people will say their their like symptoms and we'll put them into our supercomputer and it'll be like ba bam this is what you have and then weirdly that never took off because that shit doesn't work it's like no people aren't fucking algorithmically determined that way everybody's body you know yeah there's generalities to it but there's also differences and so like it, it, you need a real human person who's capable of developing an extended relationship with a patient I mean, and can actually yeah, figure that shit out. I wouldn't necessarily trust IBM to uh, to administer <laughs> yeah. a, a healthcare no. system. Don't I mean? True. If you look into the history <laughs> of uh, what they've done with some of their systems they've created, you might find yeah. a, a big, big, big <laughs> blotch in there. Well, and I, I mean, I'll trust a computer's medical diagnosis at some indeterminate point after I never have to click on a picture of a traffic light ever again. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's all I have yeah. to say about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. No, but absolutely. I mean, we should, I mean, I think that we really need to hammer home. Like, re- this is a great example as to why we need, well, for one, consistent staffing, but also mm-hmm. we need healthcare for all. We need to remove yeah. the profit motive from these systems because the idea that you can just like keep squeezing these workers further and further into pre- precarity uh, and that, and have that somehow get good health results is insane it, it is yeah. absolutely wild to to expect that to happen yeah and and i mean this is like because that's the thing it's like people i think sometimes take a bit too like individualized of an approach to saying why this happens like oh well it's because the healthcare ceos are greedy and it's like well sure yeah but it's like that's why they're ceos but it's like the reason that we pointed to like lean manufacturing at the start of this story is that this is a function of the logic of capital in every industry. Like we're going to, in the next story, we're going to get into some of the other ways that this is applied, but like this, this sort of rationalization, this sort of slashing of labor costs, it's really started in the eighties in, in auto manufacturing, but it has spread to everything and is now leading to stuff like this, which is basically the proletarianization of nursing as a job. Cause like nursing has always been a working job, but specifically trying to cut it's like the, the wages and basically to not to de-skill it, but to treat it as like a de-skilled, a rationalized position right. well, in order to, to, again, slash those labor costs, make more profit. It's no surprise that a lot of the industries where we see the, the biggest movement are industries that were once considered like, yes, it's a proletarian job. It's a working job, but it's like, a, a surefire way out of poverty, right? Like right. If we, when we talked about the pharmacists, I think this was at its mm-hmm. most stark, but you see this with nurses. You see this with people who uh, have job, like warehouse jobs. Amazon is encroaching on that. It's like these used to be jobs where it was recognized that it took a certain level of specialized skill, familiarity, you know, amount of time working at a specific location to do the job well and safely. And now these, uh, industrial giants just chasing the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall are just like, let, I guess the only way to make more money is to make them more dangerous and make teenagers do them, you know, yeah, or make and, retirees do them. And, and speaking of industries using the desire to slash labor costs in order to boost their profits, no matter how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, goes right into our next story, which is the long, slow burn process of negotiations in the uh, railway industry that has way off on the horizon <laughs> the potential for a a pretty impactful strike action. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Get there have the been details. a couple of... Uh hiccups along the way uh, and they're not subtle. <laughs> it's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> Well, I mean, some of this, uh, we can get into some of the more recent details, but some of this has been pushes from uh, the railway companies for years and years and years Mm -hmm. to uh, reduce the amount of stat or the amount of people to who are doing these jobs from you know like i guess usually it's like there's two conductors on a train to make sure that there's someone there for backup and all that and to cut that down to one they i have actually i was reporting on this back when i was doing my old labor reporting job in like 2015 Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so 
this is going to get into this was a this was an educational story for me not just about like the the immediate story but also learning about some of the differences in in how labor is handled legally on in railways than it is in the the rest of the you know private sector and and what we're talking about is so the freight rail industry as a whole basically essentially has like a master agreement for its bargaining. It it is still like one of the more heavily unionized sectors out there. And partially because, you know, uh, rail freight moves an enormous percentage of all of the goods that go across the U S I think the number I saw was something like 1.7 trillion, like mile tons of, of freight. Cause it's like, it's, it's the amount of freight moved over distance. Right. Um, which is like, it's less than trucks, but not much. Um, and so, but the way that they bargain is, is very different than most of the private things where, because rail is considered like critical infrastructure, the government is way more directly hands-on in this stuff and really restricts the ability of these unions to strike. And so there's two parts of this that we want to get into. One is just the overall big picture where there's a coalition of 13 unions called the the Coordinated uh, Bargaining uh, Coalition, I think. Yeah, Coordinated Bargaining Coalition, who negotiate with the basically a consortium of, of all of the major like, class one rail freight companies, which is, has, like most industries, gone undergone a severe consolidation. They're down to, I think, about six companies from several decades ago. There would have been about 35 of them. Wow. And, and so they have been negotiating for nearly two years on trying to update their contract. And so this is another one of the weird things where, like, contracts in railway, like, they don't expire. They just end and then you stick with that contract while you're on negotiations because they like don't want to give a, a, an excuse for the for the railway unions to strike right and so like is exactly what lena was talking about like there the negotiations have been stalling repeatedly over things specifically like the slashing of jobs and the the efforts by these companies to move to smaller and smaller crews and, and specifically they, a lot of them really trying to move to one person crews which is very dangerous. Um, and so they have been stalled in these negotiations. And because of the uh, Railway Labor Act, which I want to get into some of the details on that because it's different than the NLRA. So like with the NLRA, like if you have an unfair fair labor practice, you can just do an unfair labor practice strike. I mean, it, unless you have some certain language in your contract, but Right. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much always. And then if you have economic issues and you have a no-strike clause, you got to wait until the contract is up. But then you can go on strike. Um, with railway workers and also with some airline workers, that's not the case. The government is much more directly involved where they have their negotiations. And if you hit a snag, then you go into a mediation period where the government brings in a third-party mediator to try and resolve the impasse. And if that's successful, they sign they they have a, a tentative agreement and they go to ratification as normal. If that fails, then they go to arbitration, mm. which is binding, but only if both the company and the unions accept it. But even if the unions reject the arbitration move, then there's a 30-day cooling off period. That one where, that's conf- 30 day cooling off period? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where mediators will try to get both sides to come back to the table. And 
only then after all of that shit, and that can take months and months. I mean, it can take years. Like again, like they, they were last scheduled to negotiate a new contract in 2019. They are still negotiating. Um, and only after all of that shit, then can they legally strike. And the, the big asterisk there is that even if they go through all that stuff, they go through all the legal hoops and they finally get the, the RLA's level of approval needed to strike. Congress can say, ah, this is too big of a disruption to the, to the economy. You guys got to come back, which is exactly what happened. The last time there was a major snag in, uh, railway negotiations back in uh, the, I believe 1991, um, I, I I can't, I'm not exactly sure. It was, it was during the first president Bush era, I believe where the unions went on strike for one day. <laughs> Congress was immediately like, no, 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 Enough of that. Go back to work immediately or you're all fired. <laughs> well, and in this case, we had these workers, which were like kind of maybe not about to, but like poised to potentially go on strike. And there was an injunction, uh, a temporary injunction issued by a North Texas, federal circuit court judge is that am i getting that right yeah so this is the more immediate issue so there's there's the blanket issue of like all of the major railway companies Uh slashing uh staff while making huge profits like there was one of the companies there was a really good video on um more perfect union that i retweeted earlier today that really sums up this stuff really well where and a couple of the articles that I read about this, one of the major rail companies' stock price over the last couple of years has gone up by like a thousand percent. Damn. <laughs> and and like so many of these industries that we talk about, they've been taking all of their profit, like a huge amount of their profits, and have they been, you know, putting that into higher salaries or better benefits or just hiring back more staff so that their their people aren't stretched so thin? No, they've been using it on fucking stock buybacks to jack their stock prices up even more to just give that back to the shareholders. And so that's the overarching picture that the whole railway industry is facing. But what's been happening recently, specifically with the company BNSF, which is one of the biggest of the class one rail. I think it might be the biggest of the class one rail carriers, uh, who have now instituted a new, they've just unilaterally instituted a new attendance policy without the approval of the union. And without like the approval of a mediator or an arbitrator or anything. And this is like one of the most (laughs) ridiculous draconian attendance policies that I've seen in really any of the stories that we've covered where (sighs) workers are expected are only going to be scheduled for one day off a month. And then if they want to take days off that they don't have scheduled, they have a point total that they would be deducted from where if they take a weekday off that they're scheduled to work, they lose two points out of their 30 total. If they take a weekend off that they're scheduled to work, they lose four points. And if they take a holiday off that they're scheduled to work, they lose 10. And if you drop below your zero points, you will get fired. That's fucking ridiculous. That's this is these, these point systems are, are something that I've seen before. And, uh, this is kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning of the episode. And I was like, I kind of want to tell a little bit of a story of, of, and if anybody's been following the episodes closely enough in my kind of talking of the, the union that, that failed, uh, well, I mean, we got, and then we lost, uh, in, in one of my workplaces. Uh, I think the thing 
that basically caused us to lose our union more so than anything else was the fact that we instituted, and by we, I mean mostly the company, and I guess technically they coerced us into into saying okay, but uh, they, outside of the contract, a point system like this, which then sent a lot of the workers in the shop into, like, very dangerous situations where people who are new there could get fired within a week or two based on like the these point systems i mean this one railway system you could get fired in a week like if you got sick and you couldn't get like a doctor's note you could basically just be fired yeah mm-hmm. and uh and one of the things that i want to go to on the detail about my story is uh kind of a critique that i learned through through studying a lot of this is like well, the company, we were discussing this attendance policy over the at the bargaining table and we came up with this thing and we really we we really kind of conceded to some what I thought were, you know, maybe okay terms, but not the best. We'll get something better later. But then when we TA'd it, they offered to instate it immediately, which I guess should have been a red flag for me. But I was like, okay, well, I need to talk to the other workers. Well, it wasn't our store that initiated that. And so I go ahead and I hit up the other store and I'm like, hey, does this sound about right? And they're like, uh, I don't know, I guess. And then we said, okay. And then it went into effect, which is, uh, you might catch uh, in that story, there isn't a lot of democracy uh, in that particular story and that really we should have put it to a actual vote of all of the members but somehow we managed to do it anyway so again rank and file democracy is what you need because i'm pretty sure that there were plenty of people who would have said i'm sorry but that is just going to get me fired yeah well i mean to to me, I, I would say the biggest red flag is is that it is a point system, right? Like any kind of extremely strict scheduling and attendance policy is bad, and you should resist that. But when they when they make the the casino brain move, the the candy crush loot box move of introducing an intermediary currency, the only reason that someone in a position of power would ever do that is to make it for the people they're fucking over. To, ha- to to make them have a harder time visualizing the specific way they're getting fucked. That's literally all that a point system is there to do. They're basically saying, like, you have no time off. And there's, there's also uh, the other part of the casino brain is they know that a lot of people are just going to show up and work every single one of those days because they're terrified of dipping into their points mm-hmm. in case they need them down the road. And then you end up with a bunch of unspent points. And it's like, maybe the company gives you that as like, you know, hours worked, you know, in one of your paychecks or whatever, they but don't. you've still just, dis- and they usually don't, but you've destroyed your body <laughs> to preserve some fucking points. So you or don't lose you your job by sick. working 29 days a month. Well, yeah, and exactly like what you're you're both saying. Like this is also a big part of why we have been going so hard on the CDC guidance shift mm-hmm. on the amount of time to quarantine for COVID because with the shift in guidance to only 5 days, there was an example that I saw in one of the articles talking about this that made a great point whereas if you get COVID under this policy, you qu- you get your 5 days to quarantine, if you're still contagious after 5 days, which most people are, mm-hmm. Or you're still sick, which again, a lot of people, even if you're vaccinated, a lot of people are. There's the potential where if, if even if you just have to take nine days 
not even to the 10th one that is what the, the policy used to be and was better then, you could use up, if it's over a weekend, those extra four days beyond the CDC guidance, you could use up 28 of your 30 points just in that one four-day span, just trying to recover from COVID. So you could oh. use up basically your entire year's worth of time off just trying to recover from COVID. And, you, and because of the CDC guidance, you're not entitled to those just being counted as, as normal sick days. Well, and God help you if one of them's a holiday. If you're sick yeah. on Easter, you're just fucked. You may as well just yeah. leave your job that day. Yeah, and so thankfully... I mean, the union, two, two of the big unions at, you know, covering the workers at BNSF, the BLET, which is the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, and Smart TD, which is the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers Transportation Division. Hell yeah. I love um, some fucking sheet metal. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> so they have both, they is in, in, immediately pushed back against this because BNSF just like, yeah, we're, we're instituting this new attendance policy. It's fine. And the unions read it and were like, wait, what? And so both of their presidents like put out a joint statement. This is uh, Dennis Pierce from BLET and Jeremy Ferguson of Smart TD, who described the policy as, quote, the worst and most egregious attendance policy ever adopted by any rail carrier. And <laughs> they pointed out that like BNSF made $5.1 billion in net income in 2020 and was on track to make 70% more in pure profit by the third quarter of last year, which is over $100,000 in profit per employee. And, and yet they are slashing crews and trying to force people to work uh, 342 days a year. Uh, or three to 44. Uh, and so that led to an immediate overwhelming strike authorization vote from the 17,000 BNSF workers where, where there was literally not one single vote against. Yeah. It, it, it was, was just all, like some abstains. I yeah. Guess. There were, there were a few people who didn't vote and it was otherwise like 89% yes votes. <laughs> Yeah. And in their statement, they said, quote, the, this unprecedented BNSF policy repudiates direct and clear contract language and in application will attempt to force our members to report for duty without regard for their medical condition as we struggle to come out of a pandemic. It also stands to take away any ability by our members to avoid working fatigued when they are routinely called without warning due to the complete lack of reliable train lineups, thus creating the potential for an even more unsafe railroad operation. So-called forced overtime in an industry where safety is so critical not only repudiates our agreements, it stands to enact irreparable harm on hundreds of full-time employees whose non-workplace obligations prevent them from being at work every day of their life, end quote. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I that they, that's a good statement. <laughs> I, yeah. I think they're, they're, they're right on. Like, this is an insane, like this would be an insane thing for them to demand as an ask, like during a negotiation, much less just being like, no, we're just imposing this like on you. Right. And, and you had alluded to this when we start like before John, but unfortunately because of how fucked up the, the, railway labor act is and and how inserted the government is to these negotiations the the union couldn't just say this is a violation like in in a 
in a private industry, in a normal private industry that was under the NLRA, the company could say, this is a violation of the contract. So this is an unfair labor practice. We're going on strike and that's it. Mm -hmm. However, because of the Railroad Labor Act, BNSF sued to prevent them from going on strike. And a Texas state judge issued an injunction running from when the attendance uh, policy went into effect, which was this past Tuesday, until February 8th, uh, hoping that it would be heard by a, you know, a full judge, like a full panel before then, like an actual trial, um, say, where they argued that BNSF would face, quote, major harm due to the strike and that the judge believed that BNSF would likely win their case, that this was not a major alteration to the contract and therefore not eligible for a strike and that the union has to go through mediation to deal with it. And they also, he also said in his ruling, which thankfully I, some, I don't remember who it was. Somebody tweeted it out where, um, he said that the union would quote, that it would quote, cause the union no harm end quote while the case works its way through mediation. That's ridiculous. That's just disgusting. And a, pa- a series of patent lies, you yeah. know? Because one of the things that's so frustrating about learning about the, the Railway Labor Act stuff is that, like, they point out that the whole, the whole thing is premised on the idea that the U.S. is a gigantic con- country, which is true, and that um, in order for the country to function, it needs the railroads going to move freight around the country, which, again, is true. Sure. And so they say, well, that's why we can't just have the union striking willy-nilly, and therefore we have to put all <laughs> these controls on them because otherwise it will be a danger to the economy. But I that's why like that statement from those presidents is so important because you know what the real fucking danger to the economy is slashing your crews to the point that you're gonna run 17 billion ton freight trains with one guy on them. Right. Who if he has a heart attack or like gets has covid and suddenly guards starts getting symptoms or i don't know there's a problem and like something on the train blows up and he gets hurt like and there's nobody else there now you have a runaway train Mm -hmm. like that's the danger to the economy is the way that these companies are trying to squeeze fucking like every ounce of blood out of their workers well and that's the danger they've already managed to get it down to two and they want to get it down to one yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the concept that, like, if you give workers too much latitude, they'll start striking willy-nilly. Like, I support the idea <laughs> that, like, workers should use gains uh, of power to gain more power and eventually control their workplaces. But, like, frivolous strikes are not really a thing. It's kind of they like... don't exist. Uh, it's kind of like the argument against universal health care where they're like, people will just start getting elective surgeries. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, they fucking won't. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't happen. What are you talking? Like, yeah, like Cuba has like the best healthcare system in the world. You don't have people just walking in there being like, "I think today I will get laser surgery yeah. because fuck it." Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not a thing. They get it if they need it for a real reason. Just like workers go on strike if they have real meaningful demands in their mm-hmm. workplace. And That's like, right. Anybody who's ever worked a job should be able to take one look at this attendance policy and realize that the claim that it's not going to impact the union is just insane and, and, and one of the most bald-faced lies you could ever tell. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of blatant grievances... 
Yeah. Uh, we can move back over to a story that we've been covering for a long time, and that mm-hmm. is the uh, Bessemer, Alabama, and Staten Island Amazon unions, where mm-hmm. Amazon, you remember the, the mailbox that basically caused the Bessemer election to get thrown out? Well, it's still there, folks. It's still there. They Well, they moved it a little further away from the building. Wow, heroic. <laughs> yeah, I... I had I honestly did like a double take when I when I first saw this. I was just like, because we talked about one of our you know things when we were talking about when the NLRB made their ruling that there had to be a new election. We're like, well, this feels like it's giving Amazon a big out because they focus so much on this mailbox. All they'll have to do is get rid of the mailbox, and they can keep up all their other union busting fuckery. We did say that like three times, (laughs) and yet Amazon has the balls to just be like. What if we just move the mailbox to a different part of the parking lot? <laughs> God, it sucks so bad when you underestimate your enemy, not just their power, but like their scumminess and laziness. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Cause like I saw a couple of the pictures in like the articles about this and I had thought, I'm like, no, no, you guys are using the picture from last time. And they're like, no, no, it's still there. They're still using the mailbox. And like, there was a quote in here from, from one of the workers there, Daryl Richardson, who said, quote, this whole election was overturned because of the mailbox. I don't understand why it's still out there End quote. And yeah, Daryl, I don't either. <laughs> it's, it's fucking wild. Like it, it is like the RWDSU has filed a request for the mailbox to be removed. They said, quote, the fact that the mailbox is still within view of the employer's surveillance cameras makes it clear that there is no neutral ground on the employer's premises End quote. But like <sighs> there isn't anyway. No. And it's just, it's so brazen. Like the, the fact that like the, the, Honestly, if I worked for the NLRB, I would feel insulted. I would be like, come the fuck on. Like, we already have, like, no teeth on any of our decisions. And you can't even respect this one little thing. Yeah, I just well, want, I, I want some, like, like really militant NLRB worker to take his truck out there with a chain and just drag the mailbox <laughs> out of the fucking parking lot. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, like, because like, when, when the NLRB ruled on this, they said it had to be moved to a neutral location, mm-hmm. uh, which apparently means, like, what is it, like 15 feet away from where it was before? It's still, it, <laughs> multiple of these sources have said it's still clearly in sight of Amazon's security cameras, which is yeah. really the origin of the problem, as well as it being on campus at all. And just yeah. uh, for the listeners, there are no militant NLRB members. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, it, it is just, it's inexplicable that, like, that would be allowed, but it, it, it also just speaks to the toothlessness of U.S. labor law. Um, mm-hmm. Like, RWDSU is doing their best, but, like, the the turnaround on this has been really fast to try and spin this this back up again like ballots start going out tomorrow we're recording this on Thursday so th- this will they'll go out on Friday the 4th um they've already had to issue an unfair labor practice charge against Amazon not about the mailbox they already i mean in addition to the mailbox for Amazon disciplining workers for organizing after Amazon wrote up one of the workers at the Bessemer plant just for talking to coworkers about the union. And so they are trying, you know, to, 
to ramp up their efforts. They're doing door knocking to try and speak to other coworkers. They're doing solidarity t-shirt days, which is, you know, that was a tactic that was really successful for the, um, CTU when they were really like reviving their militancy basically as a, just as a way to like help build up people's confidence because you could come in, you don't even have to have a talk to your like coworkers, but if you just see all these people are wearing union t-shirts and they're like, Oh, it's not just me and a couple other people. It actually is a lot of folks. Right. So yeah. in my, that's in, a good tactic in one of my, in the union that I was just referencing earlier. One of the things that sometimes a coworker, cause they knew how, how serious I was about it. They would, they would like, cause we had over shirts. They would unbutton their shirt a little bit and like show me to be like, you know, I'm still here with you. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the things, though, that I really liked that they pointed out in, in, in this one is that the workers, especially the ones, you know, who went through the first union drive last year, because unfortunately, because of Amazon's turnaround, their, their turnover rate, about half of the workers in the bargaining unit, again, this is less than a year since the election and about half the bargaining unit is new employees since then, which, and the, they've raised the bargaining unit size to 6,100 workers now. So that's 3000 people that are, they've hired since that election, which is wild. Yeah. But one of the things they mentioned that they're doing is really pushing back and really like standing up during the captive audience meetings that Amazon's holding. Oh, um, yeah. Like one of the workers they have in their, their organizer, Isaiah Thomas, who is the guy who was, who was written up for organizing. He said in an interview, quote, we've been shutting down those meetings. We ask, why are you lying to us? Why are you giving us misconstrued facts about collective bargaining and status quo? And one of the other things that I love that they said that they were doing was just telling people to confront the various union busting consultants that Amazon brought in because they said that, they asked one of the consultants in a meeting, one of those captive audience meetings to identify herself. And she provided three different names <laughs> during the course of the questioning. Yeah. I guess uh, in, in such a, as with such a huge population there, uh, I mean, the, the union busters should, I mean, like, I mean, they're, they're scared of their identity getting out, which I mean, I, that's not bad. Uh, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the idea that they are so brazen as to just, lie about who they are so you can't even look them up you can't you can't see that they're getting paid you know a hundred thousand dollar probably you know five or ten thousand dollars what was it i think it's like at least a thousand dollars a day usually i mean like the amount of money that went into a one month uh union busting campaign for 13 workers was a hundred thousand dollars so in my experience not this particular one but well the amount of money they make is a lot well, and they're also scared because they're also pretty identifiable. Like some guy shows up in uh, brand new jeans with a cop haircut saying, how do you do, <laughs> fellow workers? Like, yeah, that's a union buster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Thomas had said like, quote, I tell my coworkers when these consultants come up, do you ask them, what's your name and how much are they paying you? These consultants always run away because they don't want to tell their name and they don't want to say how much they get paid to intimidate workers. Yep. And that's good shit. That's like, that's what like you need to be when you're trying to fight a company like Amazon, like your core of, of activists, like organizers, you got to be willing to stand up to those folks. And I feel like this is a, a tear up in militancy from the stuff that we were hearing from the first go round last year. So that's, that's good to hear. Although, I mean, we definitely want to stay realistic because 
uh, I think, I mean, a stat that I've seen pointed out over and over again is that redone elections like this only have a success rate of about 40%. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's in general, and this is, they're still going up against basically like the biggest, most aggressive union buster out there. So I don't want to get our hopes up too much, but I do think that it, it, it seems like the RWDSU organizers are really stepping, stepping up their game and, and really trying to, to go for it on this one. But like, as we said, the, the ballots are going out this tomorrow and the vote count will begin at the end of March. But at the same time, we've got organizing efforts going on in New York. Um, we've talked in the past about the Amazon labor union, uh, attempting to organize out of JFK eight in Staten Island. That's the, the group largely like run by Chris, uh, smalls who, you know, was fired at the beginning of the pandemic for trying to organize around, uh, pandemic protections. And now they have both gotten enough cards to file for a, a union election and also gotten a ruling. Well, a, a allegation from the NLRB that Amazon has been illegally surveilling workers there. And like, I think we should preface like that with when the NLRB is saying it, you know, they're doing a lot of bad surveillance. Cause it's like every company surveils their workers, even though they're, they're not legally allowed right. to. So if the NLRB is acknowledging it, <laughs> then like, it must they must be, be doing it pretty brazenly. Yeah. Particularly egregious, uh, surveillance. It's like, it's like when OSHA actually finds a company for something, <laughs> right? It's like, Holy shit. There must be a lot of terrible shit going on there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like they said in their statement that they, quote, repeatedly broke the law by threatening, surveilling, and interrogating their Staten Island warehouse workers who are engaged in, an anti, in, a, in a union organizing campaign. They said that a union consultant interrogated employees about their activities, called union organizers thugs, which is already bad, but you really got to consider the fact that a lot of the major organizers at this facility are black, so... yeah. Yeah. Oh, and union cons- anti-union consultant. I mean, that's just that's just another term for. Uh, I think they call them persuaders. Oh, wait, wait. I think that they're <laughs> uh, they're actually called union busters. Yeah. Uh, also known as scumbags. Um, but yeah, and also suppose like apparently these guys have been threatening employees by telling them it would be futile to select the union as their bargaining representative, and the union wouldn't be able to do anything. Um. They all, and this is just a list of all the shit you're not allowed to do. That the consultant solicited un, like solicited grievances from employees and promised to remedy them if they voted against the union. Violation of status <laughs> quo. Yeah, and security guards have apparently been confiscating union literature and throwing it away and telling employees not to distribute it and to remove it from the break room. Which you know, violation of the NLRA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like. Well, this is just like the go ahead coward i'll pa- i'll print out the communist manifesto a thousand more times <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like they're going down the the nlra list of this is what you're not allowed to do and just right. thinking it's a checklist like sure, okay exactly. we'll do that we'll do that <laughs> like um and there do i mean look it's impossible for us to necessarily say causality in this case but it does seem like that the the pressure from this organizing drive as well as the nlrb allegations has had at least one victory for the workers there because, uh, as we've reported before, Amazon really, you know, gives zero fucks about the safety of its employees and does not close. But this past weekend, 
when there was the major blizzard that, that blew through the Northeast, they closed JFK eight for their night shift for the first time ever wow. and paid their workers to stay home. I wonder what would have made them do it. You know, this is another Henry Ford. again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Clearly like it, the, uh, Bezos was just feeling particularly magnanimous that day. <laughs> but so this drive is clearly having an impact, and, and they actually just yesterday announced that they have uh, filed a petition for election at a second location in Staten Island at the LDJ-5 facility. So, um, I mean, we don't know a lot about the details as far as, like, how many cards they've gotten from the reports that I've seen, which I haven't been able to see much verified. It seems like they're getting to basically the minimum, the 30% line. The, yeah, about a third. Yeah, which... I mean, it's hard to know, but that's something that, you know, the general recommendation is what, 70%? Uh, Yeah, you definitely want to have a majority, but a super majority at the very least. And then if you want to be confident that you're going to win, yeah, about 75%. Yeah, and obviously there are so we've we've talked before about the, the the incredible challenges of organizing at a place like an Amazon warehouse with the turnover, with the incredibly high rate of people getting fired for nothing, America's right to work laws, all this shit. But like, so we'll see. I mean, it's an incredibly uphill battle, but like they've been facing a ton of repression, and so like uh, you know we just want to encourage folks that if you're in the New York area, I mean these folks are out there organizing and, and picketing in, in in New York all, all the time, and so we definitely encourage folks to support them. And there is going to be a hearing on the specifics of the election for JFK eight on February sixteenth. So we will definitely be continuing to cover this story. Absolutely. Well, in our final story for the day, we're going to be going to one of our favorite things, a co-op. Wait a minute. This isn't that kind of co-op. <laughs> oh, this shit. Is- it's not my favorite thing. It's my stepdad's favorite thing, a sporting goods store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so REI in Manhattan uh, is a, well, they're a, a consumer co-op, which means that basically uh, the people who who have a stake in the company have the ownership and uh well as we might have alluded to in some other episodes uh consumer co-ops are notoriously anti-union because all of these people want all of the profits and they don't want to pay the workers more and Mm -hmm. uh these manhattan workers have actually filed for uh union representation they've filed for their official union recognition with the uh with the nlrb under the RWDSU. Yeah, and this is the first REI store to file for union recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've specifically cited, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in the past with, with most union drives, but particularly the difficulties of working at a store like this in Manhattan, which means, you know, you need to live somewhere in the New York City area. And on the wages that REI wants to pay you, like, so uh, Kate Dennant, who is a sales specialist at the store told motherboard that despite working 40 hours a week that she and many of her coworkers are classified as part-time and don't receive healthcare benefits that come with full-time status until they've worked there for a year, which is some bullshit. Yeah. It's ridiculous. 
And I mean, I'm sure that there's lots of workarounds for that, that like, oh, in the last month you get knocked down to like 31 hours. And so then you no longer qualify. They'll they'll pull any stop to not give you health care. Right. But but this is the same supposedly progressive company that shuts down its stores on Black Friday because they're so much more (laughs) woke than the other major retailers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We, We all know how far that goes on this show. That's why. Uh, big companies like Starbucks and small ones like No Evil Foods are a huge amount better to... I'm getting looks <laughs> from people that that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And and this is... I just wanted to mention uh, this is one other case where once again, the CDC's role in covering for employers mm-hmm. rather than protecting public health came into place because uh, one of the things that the workers have complained about is, la- is insufficient safety protocols uh, not telling workers when their coworkers have tested positive from COVID and well, a decision that, one's to rel- just, that one's just fucked. Like that, <laughs> yeah. that's incredible. Like by any human standard, even outside of a labor situation, not telling the other people in the room that one guy in the room has COVID that's insane. And, and they relaxed their masking policy. And of course on all of these things, the defense from the company is we are following the relevant CDC guidance. Which, yeah, so it's like, this is, that's why we complain about the CDC's bullshit, because it's like, it's not just that, like, they're clearly making decisions based on profit, but it's like, they have real impacts, like, on these workers' lives. Relevant CDC guidance, where does that exist? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I I know, it's, uh, this, this shit is so annoying, but, and I love that, like, Denon, the, the worker there who was interviewed by Motherboard, really gets to a lot of this stuff where she said, one thing I keep coming back to is the fact that REI prides itself on being a great workplace, a leader in the outdoors. But why is it that none of us are making a living wage? Why do you have to work 40 hours a week for 12 months to get health benefits? Why is there no guarantee of hours after the holiday season? These are very basic things that REI has gotten away with not doing despite the facade of being a progressive liberal company. Wow, it's almost like being a progressive liberal company is exactly the same as being a normal, regular company <laughs> with no differences other than a little bit of marketing. <laughs> I, th- I really think that if the word company is in there, you can basically just get rid of any sort of positive notion <laughs> in the first place. Yeah, and and like to her point, like workers start out at REI making $19 an hour, which in a lot of the country would be, you know, that'd be a, fine. That'd be a, a, a pretty decent wage. In New York City, how you can't live on that like that's it's no. just not enough you like, you could barely rent a closet in someone's house on that kind yeah, of wage you'd, yeah you'd you would be spending 70% of your money on rent <laughs> like um and of course REI being you know a progressive like uh, forward facing honest company has has chosen to volunteer oh wait nope that didn't happen oh. they are uh, pulling out all the same Union busting bullshit that we see from every other company. They're do they're doing captive audience meetings. They're calling the union a third party. They're saying it would get between the workers and the company. <laughs> Consumer co-ops cannot be good. Like that, that it is not possible for the the only type of co-op that can be good is a worker owned and managed mm-hmm. co-op. That's right. Fully worker yeah. owned, not some ESOP bullshit. Yeah, yeah. like. And, and if you're like, cause this is the thing, this is why you always got to ignore the fucking PR these companies do. Cause this is a quote from their CEO that 
Eric Arts, who wrote this in an email to all of REI's employees. And I want to know how this is distinguishable from something you might see from fucking Amazon. They said, we always start from a place of respect, which is why I want to be clear with you about the co-op's position on unionization. We do not believe placing a union between the co-op and its employees is needed or beneficial. Our business is built around the idea of working together towards the common good. And then he continues to say that, that REI is, is part of the co-op community, which means uniting around a shared mission and purpose, and that a union will not help us achieve that mission and purpose. Who the fuck isn't working together in a union? It's called a fucking union because you're working together. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I, I can't believe I'm not getting the representation uh, and camaraderie that I wanted when I joined this disunion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, example number, I don't know, 25 just on this show. Well, <laughs> yeah, we do six stories an episode. This is episode 90. Uh, <laughs> Someone yeah, else so do the math. Ne- <laughs> never trust a private company's PR. They are all like this. They are all functioning under the logic of capital, even if they call themselves an, a consumer co-op yeah, and talk I, about I, how... If major companies will lie to you about how a sandwich looks, you can bet your <laughs> bippy they'll lie to you about how they treat their workers. Well, and I mean, consumer co-op, I mean, everyone who's worked a job, especially a retail-style job, we all know that the, the consumers are the people that we uh, should listen to, right? No? I mean, I mean <laughs> we've literally done that joke like 10 times on this yeah. episode. But... Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, the like, customer so, yeah. is what always <laughs> more often than not a dipshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. That's, that's right. right. So, so these workers say they've got a super majority of folks supporting them. So, hopefully, you know, we're gonna Hell get yeah. more. Hope, we'll be seeing more information in the future. But hopefully, these folks are able to, you know, get that election to go through without too many shenanigans from REI and, and, and get that representation that they deserve. Yeah. Well. uh, I don't have a segue. Let's move to the meme review. <laughs> it's the meme review. <laughs> Hell yeah. Everybody loves the meme Why review. Why would you <laughs> want a segue? They look awful. You look like an idiot riding that thing. Um, They're mostly used by cops. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, are heavily used by cops. and uh, All cops and tourists. Yeah, That's rental cops. And, and tourists, which are just like... Um, they're the cops of the people who work in the towns where the tourism happens. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to call them like cultural imperialists or something. It was, it was not <laughs> sure, why coherent. Not? Uh, <laughs> let's go to someone who is coherent. Friend of the show, Labor Kyle. I, I love seeing that my guy. boy Kyle. Very fun. <laughs> Very fun episode we did with them. Hell yeah. Uh, and he just tweeted this absolute fucking banger. Uh, instead of how was your day, my husband has just started asking how many Starbucks locations went public with their union. <laughs> I think we're at 57. So, yeah, it, I, I think so. I, I know we're at, at at least 54, but like, that's the thing. Like, this is a great tweet and a joke, but it's, I mean, honestly, a good question because <laughs> it, it's updating every day. It, yeah. like, it, it really it, is a inspirational sight to see remember the 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 suspense and excitement you used to feel watching a liberal election back when you still cared about those things and you would watch the numbers come in on either side and you'd be like oh ohio's going for you know dipshit mcgee and uh, kentucky's <laughs> gonna vote for like you know turd burglar you know whatever and, and the, but now it's like you can actually watch things that matter like every day a dozen <laughs> you know new starbucks stores are like hey we would like to be unionized as well and that's way 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 more exciting than finding out who the new figurehead dropping bombs on the rest of the world will be 
That's right. Uh, yeah, very exciting stuff. The next one is a SpongeBob meme where he's got his old Reliable box. And Ooh. as it pop, pops open, we get to see what old Reliable looks like. And apparently it's my mind going completely blank as I set foot in the walk-in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love the, the, the feeling of being like, why did I walk into this room? But also, you're suddenly cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this one definitely got uh got a good amount of reaction from our listeners who have been in the you know food service industry and experienced this exact feeling before <laughs> i mean i've I've experienced it i mean i that, i mean what mcdonald's i worked at a local restaurant at one point that, mm-hmm. yeah walk-in freezers they are they are a bane of your memory <laughs> <laughs> and and so our next one, it, it, it would not be a, a work stoppage meme review if I didn't throw in a teenage stepdad That's joint right. in here. And so this one is, is a meme in response to uh, a bunch of stupid bullshit stories recently about shoplifting. And so this one is basically, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be like an, uh, uh, an album cover. I think, um, may, oh, maybe. Uh, it also reminds me oh, kind of like a it, video game. What's that it, old, uh, yeah. the old like one where you watch the video cameras, the night it, something? It, I don't know. The, the logo at the bottom, I think, Teenage Stepdad with that little um, Technicolor swoosh. I oh, think, is that Atari? I think no. that's a, it's an old PC a company. Yeah. Acclaim? I think it, yeah, might, it might be, be Acclaim. Acclaim. <laughs> Uh, this is the best part of the show that everybody yes. loves is where, when we try we... and figure out references. It's a claim. <laughs> it, it is definitely yeah. a claim. Okay. <laughs> okay, so it's a video game cover, but it's 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 in that vein, and it's it's got you know, it, it's like a black video game cover with a big slash, of, and behind it is is this camera with a bunch of dials, and it's got a guy in a balaclava p- get putting like a uh, a finger up to his lips, like shh, and it's just captioned, "Don't be a fucking narc." If you see something, say nothing. Times are hard out there. People have enough problems without having to look out for a bunch of fucking Karens doing volunteer loss prevention. Yeah. Mind your business. Shoplifting is a victimless crime. If you see somebody shoplifting, say something unrelated to the cashier to distract them. That's what I'm fucking talking about. That's right. (laughs) This is the same thing as putting a five-star review somewhere where, you know, you might not conventionally put it. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, as always, bangers from Teenage Stepdad. Absolutely. Uh, and this uh, next one is just a guy with his, hand, with, his, with his face in his hands. He's just saying, uh, employers, when road conditions are dangerous and they can't exploit their employees for capital. Oh, God This damn. one kind of hit home because we had some people who, in the Discord, who had some difficulties over this past... Uh, this this past uh you know storm that hit and you know solidarity with them and all that but like you know these they these people re- they really just don't care how dangerous work conditions are they they're gonna try to make you show up oh yeah and if you drive commercially they make you drive through the worst fucking weather imaginable because they're just like you know it's your job it, it doesn't matter if it's you know if we just got a foot of snow in the last two hours get out there on the road yeah yeah and then in and related, incredibly related, I mean, Dan, if you want to do the Simpsons meme, I, it's, it's good. Well, yeah, I mean, this, this last one that we've got is, uh, yeah, as you said, very much topically related where it's, it's Lisa watching this guy leaving on a train. He's like, goodbye, Lisa, honey. It'll be okay. Just read the note. 
And then she looks down and it says, you are. And then I love the fact that there was no attempt to use a font that looks <laughs> anything like the cursive writing. It's just like Arial or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you are entitled under Section 44 of the Employment Rights Act of 1996 to leave and to refuse to return to a workplace that is unsafe. That's right. That, that is absolutely right. Well, on that note, we are going to end the episode and we will see you next week. If you uh, would like some extra cool content, some uh, some extra minty evergreen content where <laughs> we right. talk about the repressive state apparatus, the history of, you know, union struggle and, and like worker struggle in general. We've got a really a bunch of awesome episodes in our Patreon feed for five dollars a month. You can uh, go ahead and get access to those. If you cannot afford that, go ahead and jump in the discord, jump in the discord anyway. But, uh, you know, we'll if you can't afford it, you know, hit us up. We can get you access to that. Uh, yeah, again, write, write a review somewhere, put it somewhere nice, put it somewhere not nice. Uh, Twitter tags. <laughs> right. Shove it right up. <laughs> <laughs> I just read Twitter tags because that's what my thing says here. To yeah. <laughs> uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook fill in. Follow the pod at work stoppage pod to get all of the things that Dan was talking about that he posts. Uh, and listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody.
对。